Warning. Explicit content. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Scott David Chase. This is My Truth, Tell Me Yours. On this episode, um, I sat down with my younger brother, Tim Chase. Um, He is a musician. Actually, it's his music that is the intro music to this uh, podcast. Um, I've wanted to do this for a while. This is the first time in almost nine years that I've seen my brother in person because he lives in Krakow, Poland. We got into a lot of stuff. Definitely talked about politics a lot before getting into music. Uh, It starts off heavy, but I promise you there's fun conversation as well. But uh, it was great to get to chat with Tim. It's been great to see him. He's been over here for about three weeks now and uh yeah it's been really good catching up but uh yeah i hope you enjoyed this conversation with my brother tim chase so yeah we're I got two going today. There's, if you look right over your shoulder, like the ceiling might collapse on you while we're recording. And that'll be fun. We are. So, uh, this is, this is the location that I think based on all my, my posting of action figures and stuff where people just assume I live, which is my mother's basement. (laughs) But yeah, it's, uh, it's slightly cooler here than than up in the house, and also it's quieter here. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, What's the deal with this heat, huh? Mm. Where did that come from? Didn't see that coming. Is Ooh. that true? I mean, no. Not being honest. I uh, feel like we've known. I, I don't. I don't remember when I first started hearing about global warming. Like, I definitely don't remember hearing about it when I was like. A kid, but also I realized that, like, you know, I, I wouldn't have paid attention to that anyways when I was a kid. But I feel like certainly by the 90s, like the mid 90s, we were hearing about it. And it's it's always funny, you know, where I work, you know, talk to the public. And there's a good cross section of people that I end up talking to. And it's always the, you know, and of course, I'm making wild you know, assumptions about people, but older people, you know, 55, 60 plus people that are like, man, this is getting ridiculous. And I'm just like, we've been telling your generation for, you know, three decades that this was going to happen. And you're acting, you know, surprised all of a sudden. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, uh, it's a loaded word, right? Global warming. And it's become, you know, kind of a, 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 like many buzzwords and, and phrases, you know, a, a phrase that, you know, the the right likes to politicize. Sure. Uh, and, you know, not to get overly political, but I think in my memory, the uh, global warming as a phrase, it, it appeared right around the same time as peak oil. Peak oil? Peak oil. Yeah. Huh. You remember that? Uh-oh. Yeah, so uh, we don't hear much about that anymore. Yeah. Uh, so peak oil is, you know, basically, you know, they the geologists, um, you know, estimated how much oil was left in, you know, the crust of the earth to right. drill. Uh, and, you know, basically peak oil was the maximum amount um, that we could possibly 
um, take out, and we basically crossed the threshold in in the mid nineties, okay. I believe. Um, and that the Earth means, will make more, though, right? I mean, yeah, totally. Eventually, I mean, if we can make you know um, digital dinosaurs, maybe right. the, we can you know get digital oil. Um, I guess that's what crypto is, right? Well, you could do it. You just get a three D printer to print oil. Yes. Excellent. But anyways, the, you know, I don't think we want to go too deep into this. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we're not going to solve this, but yeah, I already lost like 10 people listening. They're like, nope, no thanks. Yep. Yeah, no, I'm out. Yeah. But yeah, I, I've just, the only th- point is that, I, you know, obviously the two are very connected, right? The, right. the, um, the oil industry and the consumption of oil on the planet, specifically in this country, I think, yeah. you know, this has been, it's my first time back in this country in almost nine years. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I brought a couple of, uh, you know, Polish Americans with me. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, all of us, my wife included, uh, we, we are kind of re-experiencing America and, you know, from a European and Polish perspective. Sure. And the biggest thing that is definitely jumped out of me is I, I just, I remember we like things big. Uh, but like, I forgot how obsessed we are and how, you know, what our car culture looks like. And it's, it is frightening. And like what it looks like to my little, you know, six year old boy. I mean, it looks like there, there's just tanks roaming the streets. Yeah. Because cars in general in Europe are smaller. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And, you know, not just smaller, but they're, you know, much more fuel efficient. Sure. And I mean, they're. They're more utilitarian. They're like, this is what gets us from point A to point B. Not this is an extension of yeah. myself or, or what I wish myself yeah. was. Yeah, there's little, you know, uh, I, of course, there you, you do have people that, you know, uh, buy fancy cars, you know, because they're insecure and, you know, have, sure. you know, dick issues or whatever. Right. Um, but, yeah, I'm, in general, I think that it's just a different car culture but in general it's a different transportation culture sure because you know there's a lot of americans think about you know traveling by train in europe um traveling by bus traveling by tram um i mean in the city i live in in krakow um you know we have i think uh i want to say close to 320 different buses running in the city Um, and it's a city of just under a million people uh and you can literally get from every single part of the let's say the metropolitan area to any other part of the metropolitan area uh by bus and they're you know it's incredibly efficient and that's just one of you know six public transport options that you have in the city so I mean, there's there's no need for everyone to to have one car, two cars. Right. Uh, so you know, it's just a completely different you know, urban landscape. Yeah. Yeah. And in the, I think in the U.S. there's definitely you know in bigger cities there's obviously you know having metros and, and buses and stuff like that. Yeah. But this mentality also you know transfers to smaller cities and smaller towns where you have you know the same bus infrastructure. Um, you have even like trams, which are, I love trams. Um, 
We, we What's the actual of, definition of a tram? Yeah, so we, we, we know about trolleys in you know, San Francisco. Um, and I don't want to talk about trolleys. <laughs> we, all right, we won't go there. But a tram is basically, it's kind of the same thing as a trolley. Um, but it's, it's just, a, it's, it's on a wire? It's electrified, okay. yeah. It's electrified, and you have two types of trams, the ones that are um, electrified from above and ones that are electrified from below. Gotcha. Uh, the ones that are electrified from below are they like on a, sub- a track? It's like a subway, right? Okay. You have, yeah, exactly, and you have like an above ground subway, like in Chicago, right? Um, it's the same thing, and so gotcha. it's like we just call them trams. Gotcha. Yeah, this is this is absolutely exciting for the for listeners sure. out there. Sure. If you wanted to know about transportation in Europe, you oh, well, tuned you know, into the right program. The grocery store that I work at. Um, because you know, we've got a few different uh, people who who herald from international locations, um, but also different parts of the U.S. And you know, the shopping cart has different names depending on where you're from. Um, there's we've had a girl from Texas who always referred to it as a a, a buggy, um, nice. and then the Irish gentleman called it a trolley, <coughs> you know, cart and. Uh, uh, Oh, and we've got a guy from New Zealand calls it a pram. There you yeah. go. But I think he's doing that sort of cheeky. <laughs> we uh, joke around with him because he always he gets does he have like a good New Zealand accent. He does, um, but he, you know, I actually, you know, your wife and I were talking last night about you know all the stuff that I keep track of, and, and my last year's tally it was number of times I heard customers asking Ray if he was Australian because it was like yeah I mean he he tell it's literally every day yeah and yeah um but it's funny because he is a soccer coach over here oh yeah yeah he, he coaches uh girls high high school age soccer and uh he was talking about it you know a while ago someone and I was like uh my country it's called football <laughs> he's like, sorry, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I, I still don't understand why our, you know, most popular sport isn't called hand egg. I don't. I mean, I call it that. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, there is so much less foot to ball right. than there is hand to egg. I, it, it's interesting because I don't know if this is specific to our experience Growing up, or if it really was a cultural change, because football is clearly like the American sport. Yeah. But I remember as a kid, baseball being the number one, and now so many you know men my age when like whenever baseball is brought up, like baseball is considered like a lame, boring sport. Yeah. But well, it is America's pastime, which is very much. You know, even the way we refer to it, I think when it was coined as such, it was, you know, meant to be the, you know, this is where we came from in terms of, you know, sports. But, you know, now it's it is, I think, more and more in the past tense is that uh, baseball used to be the sport that, you know, everyone, uh, let's say most males uh, of the species uh, rallied around. Um, And yeah, no, it's. Very much NFL now, and it's, uh, you know. I wonder if that's more popular because, A, there's a finite amount of time, but, B, it's just more violent. Yeah, no, I think it's everything. I mean, the, you know, the NFL, and it's not, and this is interesting. I mean, the this has been probably our most successful 
American export mm-hmm. uh, next to Hollywood movies. And then maybe third the place. NFL? NFL. Really? Yeah. In terms of, I mean, you know, we have, you see numbers every year, how many millions of people around the world watch the uh, Super Bowl every year. Sure. And it's, uh, you know. I mean, it's the most watched television event. Yeah. Or it used to be. Now, uh, globally, yeah. that's now been displaced by, I wonder if you know. Is it uh, the World Cup? Or? Nope. Because that's not a single event. That's so I think it used to be the uh, World Cup finals typically get, you know, amazing um, viewership. Sure. But I believe, and because I, I remember, you know, for my job, I was looking at Paul's Drag Race? Nope. Huh. Um, uh, it's an eSports uh, final. I don't know what that means. Yeah. So eSports is, you know, video games. Gross. Yeah. So in, I believe, the final for the League of Legends, which is the, the like, the biggest, like, um, eSport um, game, gaming title. And I think it was in, in 2021. Um, it had more viewers because they also calculated online viewers into the which also the Super Bowl mm-hmm. is also now uh, League of Legends that's the thing that Alan Moore created with like Alan Quartermain and like it's all the like fictional characters yeah yeah, yeah. No, that's Leave Extraordinary Gentleman. oh yeah sorry, yeah. sorry. So you're, you got me <laughs> my, my, my level of geekdom is you know sorry yeah yeah um, shameful so anyways the yeah I, I can't remember the numbers but it's like that's when the th- this League of Legends, I think they by like seven or eight million um, had more s- viewership than Globally. the Super Bowl. Yeah, that's crazy. Globally. Yeah. So, are other are other American sports like pretty heavily followed in Europe too? Or? They are. Um, I would say after the NFL, basketball is is the most popular, and actually, that's you know. Personally, I've actually gotten more into basketball as I've lived abroad mm-hmm. than any other sport. I'm assuming it's NBA, not WNBA. That's correct. Yeah. 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 Um, Although, uh, you know, more power. Uh, uh, there's some great WNBA teams, players. Sure. Sure. It's funny. It comes up on some of the podcasts that I listen to that they they just talk about, like... How, no matter how hard they try it, like they just can't get the can't get you know a fraction of the viewership that you know even the NBA has. But yeah, yeah, I mean this is you know <laughs> this is a tough topic, right? Sure. Yeah, I mean the end of the day, you know, especially American sports, um, you know, they are male dominated, mm-hmm. uh, and yeah, they're the from the athlete all the way through the the management i mean this is the way that they're built and marketed to and um yeah that's not going to change anytime soon no well and it's sort of like it's been interesting and i'm sure as an expat you have you know a diff obviously you're going to have a different and unique perspective but just the we've kind of talked about this a little bit since you've been back visiting the, the country has changed so much in, in our lifetime, this country has that like, and the biggest thing to me, it just feels like as a country, we're so resistant to 
adapt and change. Not even re- resistance, not even the str- the right word. It's more like changing is now looked at as un-American, like, like the whole like stand your ground thing not just you know not not the not just the gun thing but just in general like if you believe something you hold on to it you don't let you you know you don't listen to these stupid people with their facts trying to dissuade you if you know something in your heart you stick to it and it's which is obviously an ignorant foolish way but it's also to me is un-american because the biggest thing that's always been great about this country is that you know, we're, we've constantly been taking in, you know, different cultures, people from different cultures, incorporating it and adapting and, you know, becoming an ever-changing country. And it's gotten to the point now where it's like, nope, we're not going to do that, you know. Yeah, I mean, this is the the tragic irony of, you know, I think where the U.S. is right now is that always the sort of the underlying founding um, ethos uh, has been questioning authority. That was mm-hmm. what the country was founded on, mm-hmm. right? I mean, the, you know, the American Revolution and all the ideals of the founding fathers, you know, the this is where democracy came from. You know, we're not going to accept your monarchy. We're not going to be ruled from a little island. Uh, you know, this is, we're going to take the power back, right? And this is questioning authority. Now, yeah, it is, you are un-American if you do not accept uh, the status quo, right? right? And if you are, you know, challenging, you know, what um, it means to be so-called, you know, American, Mm -hmm. then you're automatically un-American. Yeah. Which is just mind-boggling. Yeah. And, you know, the, I think I've been, you know, reading some recent quotes um, from Aldous Huxley. Uh, and well, Huxley compared with Orwell and their, you know, kind of their um, almost opposing views of, you know, let's say <clears throat> what a dystopian <clears throat> future would look like. Um, you know, obviously with Orwell's vision of Big Brother, a controlling entity, right? right. But Huxley had the almost opposite view: is that you know the, you know, it would be. The dystopian future would be that, you know, truth would be everywhere, but we'd be drowned in it would be drowned in irrelevancy. Right. Because there would be so much information available to everyone that, uh, you know, truth would be um, suspect, Mm -hmm. which is pretty much where we find ourselves. Right. And this is sort of this is the most disturbing thing is Mm -hmm. that facts do not matter anymore. Right. Because, you know, people are so blasé. And they have their own facts, and they have their own bubble, and they, they've been basically, um, because of social media and, you know, the, the bubble that we all put ourselves into and create, that if anything, any information comes from outside of it, it's immediately um, treated as, you know, uh, fighting words. Right. That how dare you say something that, you know, everyone else has told me is wrong. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I don't know. I, I think it's interesting and like sadly ironic how, you know, most of us are now walking around with access to the world's knowledge in our pocket. And so many of us are still just like hanging on to 
stuff that's completely not, even though we're presented with facts, we're like, well, I'm going to do my own research. And most of the time when people say that, they mean I'm going to look at three YouTube videos that are curated to me based on the 10,000 other YouTube videos I've already watched that already agree with what I believe. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And this whole, you know, what the Trump era has has brought into play is the, you know, weaponizing fake news. Mm. And, you know, with his buddy Vladimir um, and the absolute revolution that they were able to pull off um, with both Brexit and Trump getting elected and how they used um, social media platforms and, you know, paid advertisements to literally, you know, game the system and wag the dog to, to get Trump elected. And, you know, they literally... You know, in Trump's language, um, you know, he overtly uh, basically just it it was a bait and switch. Right. By calling, you know, the mainstream media fake news. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, so transparent and, you know, just silly. Uh, But it worked. Mm -hmm. And it was like, you know, it, it wasn't even, you know, like Steve Bannon and all the political strategists. I mean, they they went for the most obvious strategy to just blatantly lie and call by saying, you know, nah, 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 basically. Mm-hmm. Like, no, it's you, not me, basically. Right. Which is just like, <laughs> everyone characterizes Trump as, you know, this five-year-old, you know, constantly having tantrums, temper tantrums. And, you know, obviously he's, he's not that, but he's, he wasn't far from it. Right. There was, um, it was interesting when, when that election happened here, because, I mean, obviously, I mean, I think most people listening to this, if they've heard other episodes of this, know I'm, you know, fairly liberal leaning, um, politically, but, uh, so a lot of, you know, my friends and people that I associate with are as well and so many people were just completely shocked flabbergasted i mean i i specifically remember the 2016 election like i went to bed early um i wasn't particularly happy with you know who the options were to vote for but there wasn't really any question in my mind i went to bed early and then i woke up probably two or three in the morning, just grab my phone real quick and absentmindedly wanted to see what the votes were. And it's just like president-elect Donald Trump. And I was like, what? And, you know, was like, wait, did somebody, like, is this some, I, I looked to see if it was the onion or something yeah. that I had clicked on. And yeah. I was like, what? And, but I just wonder from like, the European perspective when that happened, was it surprising to people or did they, you know, did, you know, did people see that coming? No, it was a shock to Europe as well. Um, But it was on the heels of Brexit, right? right? Which was a much bigger deal in Europe than it was in in the U S because, you know, this was the UK leaving the EU and this was Putin destabilizing the EU. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this was, you know, the, the two were so connected. And now we know 
just how deeply connected they were. Um, I don't know if you've seen any of the documentaries about the, uh, what happened with Brexit or the, this is a great movie with um, Benedict Cumberbatch. Cumberbatch. Doctor Strange and Doctor the Multiverse Strange. of Madness? That's correct. Yeah, I saw it. Yeah, yeah. Is that a documentary? It is a documentary. <laughs> that checks out. Yeah, yeah. No, which what, which movie? Um, I can't remember the name, but he basically he plays this um, political strategist in the UK. Okay. That basically he masterminded the um, the Looking Leave up. campaign. While we're talking. So. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead and yeah, go we'll to keep the talking. interwebs. Um, and... So what it was, was, uh, you know, they basically, you know, a lot of electoral, um, you know, electioneering or, you know, calculations uh, in in democracies, uh, they come down to, you know, a very slim margin of undecided voters. Yeah. And so what they, they figured out in, you know, the, the Leave campaign and the, you know, the Brexit vote was, you know, we're, we're talking about, they figured out a magic number of undecided voters that they needed to get to. Mm-hmm. And then they devised a, a way basically to, um, in a short period of time, how to get to them. And they, you know, that went from everything to physically going to, you know, disenfranchised voters. Obviously, the largest amount would be the, you know, people that were in low income Areas that had been, you know, disenfranchised by the system um, and, you know, were basically hadn't voted for anything in in a number of years Mm -hmm. and engaging those voters and using multiple tactics. And the other way, you know, not just physically, but they figured out the, the most effective way was through social media, because, you know, even... The most, you know, the, the the deepest and most frustrated and disgruntled voter, uh, they would still have social media and right. they would still be active, um, just looking at the percentages of you know the population that were online, mm-hmm. and they you know figured out what the best way is to target those people and what you know, you know, from developing, you know, very um, controversial um, paid advertising campaigns that basically. Yeah, Facebook didn't bat an eye uh, right. at, you know, allowing them to, you know, basically just make up and publish lies. And then this is where Putin came in because his goal basically for the past, you know, decade plus has been to destabilize uh, European and U.S. democracy any way he can. Right. To muck up the system. Uh, and, you know... Um, paid advertising on social media platforms um, became the easiest way to do that. Yeah. And yeah, Brexit was his biggest success in helping to basically, you know, they, um, without, let's say, overtly um, cooperating with, um, they used this, yeah, this agency, um, Cambridge Analytica, to basically find out this and, you know, uh, find this voting block that had previously been, you know, that the other side certainly didn't know about mm-hmm. and had no means of advertising to, because we're also talking about huge amounts of uh, paid advertisements Yeah, that they, you know, basically funded, Putin funded and other third party uh, institutions funded by Putin. 
Yeah. But yeah, I mean, this is, again, we're, we're back to the issue of you're like, so what? So, so what? Even if all of this is factual and known and, you know, for, let's say, people that would um, give a shit or, let's say, um, would want to, let's say, in the future, not be susceptible to the same tactics. We're talking about the same issue we're talking about is, is that, you know, this is all fake news. Like, you know, because my news, wherever I got my news from... Um, the other side would say that it's this my source is fake news because mm. that's what my bubble has told sure me. yeah yes. so this is this is where we are is that even the echo chambers exactly yeah and we it goes round and around yeah well and yeah i mean I, so much of it like i mean we were i think I can't remember if it was you or if it was Chris. That, oh no, it was you when we were earlier this week when we were we were on a um, pie pie get and run. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. We were talking about how you know there used to be a sort of integrity with uh, with responsible reporting and you know oh, uh, yeah. and that's kind journalism. of yeah, yeah journalism in general just because it is now entertainment first and then you know facts second or you know probably much lower than that and yeah. you know how do we with the internet how do we put the genie back in the bottle now that you know it, you know because i you know i don't think anyone had any idea of the ramifications of a you know a the world wide web um, right. when it was first you know and and, and it is theoretically an amazing tool, but it's also such a, you know, completely unregulated sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, unregulated, you know, it's, you know, immediately we have to talk about, um, you know, the the big tech companies Mm -hmm. and, you know, the, the issue of, you know, antitrust and, you know, monopolies. And this is sort of, this is probably the biggest topic of our age, Mm -hmm. right? Because, you know, this is what we're talking about when we talk about Trump uh, getting elected, when we talk about Brexit, and when we talk about also, you know, what what happens in the future. And, you know, I I don't want to necessarily get into the the Ukraine war because there's a lot of other things there. But we're, you know, this is another, you know, part of Putin's, you know, propaganda and, you know, cyber attacks. Yeah. It's the next, you know, stage. And it's certainly, while, you know, traditional warfare, it, you know, we, we, we don't, we can't really think about, you know, this hybrid war uh, where you have, you know, cyber attacks and the use of propaganda um, basically propping up uh, because, you know, one thing that I haven't really heard and, and discussed much here is that, you know, people don't realize how much the wool has been pulled over um, the average Russian's eyes because, you know, at the end of the day, uh, if they knew that their country was, you know, waging war, um, an unjust war to a country, the Ukraine and Russians, I mean, they are brothers. They're mm-hmm. literally brothers. They're, you know, um, it's difficult to describe the, exactly the relationship, but it's, yeah, it's, it's basically like the U.S. and Canada. Mm-hmm. So what's going on now is basically like 
the U.S. just deciding one day to invade Canada because some stuff. Uh, and then reporting around the world that we are conducting a you know military exercise mm-hmm. uh, when in fact we're you know murdering and enslaving and you know destroying generational wealth uh, and you know ruining yeah probably a country that it'll take thirty to forty years to rebuild. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what is that, right? I mean. I think, uh, sorry, I did go down that rabbit hole a little bit. <laughs> There's a lot to unpack there. But it is, yeah, big tech has a huge role to play for still allowing um, Russia to, you know, operate. And, you know, the it's more, it's big tech and it's big oil, mm-hmm. right? And this is where, you know, people starting to understand a little bit. And this, this will take us back around to, you know, the U.S.'s role. Because, again, you know, the issue of gas and, you know, American way uh, and how much, you know, petroleum products are consumed. And this is these two things are support of big tech and allowing these monopolies to to dominate the planet Mm. and um, big petroleum allowing, you know, keep keeping this machine alive and allowing, you know, basically Russia to continue to finance their war. Mm. And that's, you know, it's these two things and they're, they're very much, they're playing out in real time. Yeah. And it, it doesn't seem like the average American really knows or, or even cares to understand the nuances of, of these issues. Now, if I were to, um, if I were to go along with several people that I know in real life, but yeah. also, you know, see online, um, clearly the gas hike price, you know, the price is going up. That's Joe Biden's fault, though. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, <laughs> the American political discourse uh, has been so dysfunctional for so long that it's, you know, you can't have a real conversation about anything That's anymore. So ridiculous. There's a guy who's literally... He's a year older than me that I've known for 30 years. I used to, you know, used to work at Camp Lincoln uh, that he bought a roll of the stickers. The It's a picture of Joe Biden that says, I did that. And every time he gets gas, he puts he puts it up on the, the pump and takes a picture of it. And I'm just like, I was like, well, first of all, you don't understand how this works. But secondly, you're creating a paper trail of. The, of you creating vandalism, but, yep. you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah, it's a real patriot right there. Yeah. I mean, well, you know, whoa, whoa. where to even start, yeah. right? I mean, uh, I, I guess I would ask is, you know, does that individual um, think that Joe Biden is actually the president? Or I don't. I, I'm. I'm not, I haven't touched that one yet. That's, no. Well, and it's well. It's the way that the way that. So most Wikipedia entries for an actor, you can they'll have like a separate drop down for filmography, and it doesn't. It just it has like a twelve paragraph thing about like the movies that he's done. And I was like, you know, while I was trying to listen to you, I couldn't skim through it and find. Yeah. Uh, it's called. Oh, it's called. Brexit. It's called. Brexit. Oh, it's a. It's the, a TV movie. Don't yeah. put that near that. Don't put that near that. Gotcha. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't. I wonder if the TV. I mean Netflix. Can we really call Netflix TV? 
it's so weird to me how it's to completely go in a different direction for a second. Like, yeah. cause I, so I watch a, um, there's a YouTube channel that I subscribe to that like pumps out. Well, they pro- it's probably multiple videos a day, but it's called what culture. And it's basically about movies and stuff like that. And it's just lists. And it's like the 10 movies that do this 10 movies. And you know, whatever, because I like, weird- I believe it's uh, listicle. It's true. Um, I, you know, I like weird minutia and, you know, do you? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I, I did not know that about you. Yeah. But, um, you know, a video that I was watching last night, it was like 10, 10 strange behaviors from that actors did from recent TV shows. And I mean, I, I don't, there wasn't really much that I remembered from it, but I remember through the 10 things, eight of the 10 of them, we're streaming things. Uh, so, I mean, it's interesting just how much the way we consume content has changed in our life where, yeah. you know, cause like, you know, where I work, you know, I work with some people that are 16 years old and I work with some people that are 65 years old and everywhere in between. And I've talked to, you know, the kids about, you know, uh, you know, like, event TV, like watching stuff on a weekly basis. And, you know, cause like the fourth season of stranger things was recently released and, you know, they drop, I think they did seven episodes and then two, the, the last two, like a month later. But I was like, no, no, no. If we were to watch a season of a show, you have to watch through four months of, you know, every Thursday night or whatever. I'm like, it's just, it's not done that way. I mean, I remember when, Disney Plus started doing The Mandalorian where they were doing it once a week, dropping a new episode. And people were like, I don't understand. Like, what's wrong with them? I want to watch the whole show. And I'm like, well, because they're like, you know. Everything this, now. Everything, everything now. Everything now. But also they're like, sucks because I have to, you know, it's going to take two and a half a month. That means How I have to pay three you, months. Disney. Yeah. yeah. You're ruining but, my life. Um, but, yeah, it's it's so fun. I mean, I, I was... I have a vivid memory of, um, so the, the, the second most watched television episode ever, cause the first most watched one ever was the, the, the finale of mash, oh, um, wow. still to, uh, uh, still, yeah. No uh, well, is that adjusted by population or no, 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 that's just raw numbers. Yeah. Well, and that's, and, and that's, that's just, that's humans in front of television sets, according to Nielsen. Yeah, but so it's interesting how that works because, you know, with films, if you look unadjusted for inflation, like the top 10 highest grossing movies of all time all came out within the last 12 years or so. Right. But that's because a film like like theater tickets cost more. Uh, B, movies open in far greater number of theaters all the time. Uh you know, stuff like that. But, you know, if you look at stuff adjusted for um, inflation and whatnot, it, it, it changes the thing. Um, it's also crazy how movies are released, but TV, it's the opposite in that because there's so much content out there now, um, like nobody, there's, there's nothing coming out now that 12 million people are watching. Right. It's, um, I, I don't remember what the the numbers are for MASH, but it was like 
it was a crazy number. But back then, there were three networks. There were three things on TV, and right. it was you know everyone knew it was coming up. But the second most watched one was the Seinfeld finale, and I remember because I no way yeah the which is funny because I just last year into this year because um, Seinfeld got dropped onto Netflix. Yeah. Um, I went through and rewatched it. And yeah, yeah. The, Kasha, my wife is, is currently watching yeah, the, um, Seinfeld. It's great. Well, the ninth and final season is terrible. Right. Uh, but, and you know, I watched the finale and I was like, man, this is terrible. But I saw it live when it happened with <laughs> three members of the band, bad religion, because I was seeing bad religion at the middle East in Cambridge and they were playing the night that it aired and they went on a half an hour early because it was a 90 minute episode. But a lot of like a lot of people didn't know that because um, they said, you know, it was going to be a long episode and people. I mean, I think with all the commercials cut out, it's about 62 minutes. But, you know, with commercials, it was 90, and it was playing in the upstairs lounge. I was open to everyone, so I was literally just sitting right behind uh, Jay Bentley, the bass player from Bad Religion. So I I have this weird association in my mind with the finale of Seinfeld and the band Bad Religion. Mm -hmm. But, like, that just doesn't happen that way now. And it's, you know, a season of a show will drop in one day, and then a day later I'll be at work and someone starts talking about it. And I'm like, how did you even watch... 10 hour long episodes They're like oh, I had the day off and I'm just like yeah good night that's, that's my life yeah, yeah. streaming yeah. whatever I'm told to um, did were they disappointed bad religion with the uh, Seinfeld finale uh, I don't remember the reaction I actually I posted something about it recently because I had uh, in my many moves and moving my col multiple collections of things uh, that particular Bad Religion album, the Grey Race that they were touring behind had disappeared, so I had to reorder it, and uh, or I didn't have to, I chose to, mm -hmm. um, and you know, so I posted something about it online, and I tagged Jay Bentley, and he's like, "Oh man," he's like, "I remember watching that." He's like, "I couldn't remember what city we were in though," and he's like, "Boston, huh?" And I, he's like, "You sure?" And then like. 20 minutes later, you're responding. He's like, yep, I looked at the, he's like, I looked at the notes in my journal. You're right. I was like, yeah, I, I mean, I can't imagine why I would make that up, but yeah. there are, you know, you know, there are plenty of people that would make stuff like that up, I guess. I mean, they're a, I would say a mid-level band at, at best. So, you know, no, no offense to bad religion. I'm a huge yeah. bad religion fan. And to be fair, I, we both are 21st century digital boys. It's true. So it's true. Thanks bad religion. Mm -hmm. uh, why did I? No, I was I, just, well, uh, so in the break, um, cause the hot water heater was running. Yeah. This is a very, we are still in mom's basement. This is the high tech recording uh, studio, but I ran up to urinate and I, I just, cause my shirt is wet. I just lifted up my shirt to smell it, but it was, uh, forgot I leaned up against the sink afterwards. So nice. Yeah, it's not pee. I didn't pee go. on my shirt this time. Great. So since we're, since we were haphazardly talking about music, um, earlier this week, so you are a musician. I am a musician. Cause yeah, deep down is. this podcast is about talking to artists, writers, musicians, creators. You played, an album that you performed on. Yeah. Um, tell me, I know you've told me, I, I'm never going to remember the name of the band. 
Tell me. Uh, so it's it's a play on words, but uh, the language is Hungarian. Mm-hmm. So uh, I mean, I don't know what your listenership uh, is. If uh, huge there's Hungary. any Hungarians, out it's, there. it's funny that you should say that because I actually have we gained. Uh, we we do have some Hungarian subscribers. I also because the joke because my other podcast, the News of Our Demise, has a bigger. Um, or had a bigger subscription thing at first, but this podcast had, we gained two Russian subscribers and that one we had none. Yes. Um, I, we can, I can actually attribute that to when I, um, uh, when I spoke to Santos Montano from old man gloom, um, we gained a bunch of international listeners from there. So we have, from the last I checked, which was at least a year ago, we had about a dozen Hungarian, uh, Awesome. So, so uh, the name of the band is Tegnap Utan. These are two words. The first word is Tegnap, and the second word is Utan. But they're put together as one word, so Tegnap Utan. Um, and many people think that the name is Techno Putin, uh, but it's Tegnap Utan, um, and it, I believe it tr- uh, translates to uh, yesterday's tomorrow. Hmm. Yeah. So right on. yeah, and anyways, the yeah. So the I am a guest singer in this uh, in their latest album that we are uh, releasing officially, I believe, um, in November this year. What's uh, the album called? The album is called "The Space Erase," and which is another play on words. Yeah, yeah. yeah to uh, uh, now is is erase spelled E R A S E or E R A C E. E R A S E. All right. Yeah, but actually, the the some of the topics that we've we've kind of discussed, uh, we we are going, you know, hard at some of these topics, uh, and I mean specifically the the what is truth, mm-hmm. right? And you know the you know the, the the general topic i don't want to give away too much um because i do want people to to explore the album in you know in its many different varieties uh that we're going to be releasing it uh-huh. um but generally i think you know what what i would like to say is that it's you know it, it's the concept is about a famous historical event uh-huh. that um and the event is the the moon landing which in and of itself um, you know, is a controversial... Which moon landing? Uh, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, uh, in America, very much uh, the, the latter part of the 20th century um, and the, let's say, American dominance in the 20th century, you know, is built around, you know, a few huge milestones uh, in technology. And the greatest of them is the uh, landing on the moon. Mm. And that was also, you know... Uh, basically the cold war was never won, but that was the beginning of the end of the cold war was the U S landing on the moon mm-hmm. because in, in uh, this was a, the cold war, if anything, it was a war of propaganda, uh, between both sides mm-hmm. and, you know, the American dominance of the, you know, global, um, war of propaganda was won as soon as we landed on the moon. Because mm-hmm. again, talking about you know events that were watched globally, uh, the moon landing is, is must be top five still. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. 
so you know we don't I don't want to go too much into that but the you know the one thing that is never really thought about or discussed uh, is what was the Soviet Union doing um, while the Apollo program was progressively inching closer and closer with every launch mm-hmm. to you know an actual moon landing because you know one thing that a lot of Americans forget is that the Soviets were first actually with you know they had a few um, they had the first satellite with Sputnik mm-hmm. and they had the first man in space uh, with Yuri Gagarin first uh, you know cosmonaut to I believe uh, not only was the first man in space but the first he was up in space for a full cycle um, circumnavigating the earth. Hmm. So they were, you know, and that was in what, 60 or 61. And that's when the Apollo program, you know, and that's when Kennedy uh, famously said, you know, um, we will go to the moon in this decade and we will do the other things. Hmm. Uh, You know, that famous, you know, that was defined his presidency. You know, basically we're, we're, doubling down we're going to take whatever it takes and that's when nasa really became nasa uh, and when the you know we started and also there's a lot of other issues that go to that but you know the defense department um darpa you know they started getting just blank checks from congress uh and what was happening in the soviet union you know there there was because you know the uh, the communist system works very differently and the you know the communist bloc you know they were using um the i wouldn't even call them space programs but like the the aerospace programs of a lot of satellite um communist countries that were part of the what's called the common turn the, the communist international um community that was dominated by the soviet union specifically in central eastern europe because there was a lot of countries that were not part of the soviet union that were part of this communist bloc. Like, you know, this is where the Iron Curtain reference came from after post-World War II, you know, um, from the Baltics to Poland to Slovakia, uh, Romania, uh, Bulgaria. They were all communist countries and the Balkans as well. Serbia, um, Slovenia, and now Croatia and Bosnia. So they were all within the Soviet sphere of influence, but they were... They were not part of the Soviet Union. So, but they were still all of their aerospace programs. They're basically, um, maybe not hijacked, but they were, you know, their pilots were used uh, for, you know, various test missions. Yeah. But they were all treated as secret missions. So the um, Intercosmos was the name of the Soviet version of NASA. And... You know, have you ever heard about this? Were you did you read about this? Were we no. taught about this? This no. is you know obviously this is you know nothing that was discussed. Right. You know the Soviets obviously did not want to reveal. You know it was very secret, and you know the NASA programs were very um, publicized. At least the official versions when they were successful. Mm. But you know we would we didn't immediate you know we didn't immediately find out except for when for example. I think it was what Apollo Nine that exploded. Mm. Um, so yeah, that's that's the starting point for for this uh, concept album, mm. uh, and it's you know dealing with um, yeah a, a 
an alternative version of of history, but based on you know a version of the truth. Sure. Uh, that may or may not have happened. I got gotcha. you. Yeah. Interesting. Um, and you said this was the the latest album from this band. So they yep. they did albums. They have other albums before. This. Yeah, yeah. This this band they've been around for uh, I want to say about fifteen years. Oh, okay. And yeah, they're they're all seasoned uh, musicians. Um, they're a little bit older than me. I'm, I'm not gonna you know bring up the age thing, but you know, I'm over forty, mm-hmm. um, and these guys are yeah late forties, uh, and they've been around. They played in lots of different bands, mm-hmm. um, and uh, the bass player, the guys, the guy's name is Bela. Bela, shout out if you're you're listening. Um, it's funny, I, I met him in Krakow because he lived in Krakow about 10 years ago. I okay. can't remember exactly when, when we met. But um, he was, getting back to the petroleum industry, mm-hmm. he was, uh, I can't remember if he was the president or, you know, he was definitely an executive of the uh, a company called Slovnaft, which is a subsidiary of a Hungarian um, oil company. And basically, he'd worked for this oil company for for a while, and he would he was sent to different countries to basically be their sort of interim CEO of that you know local um, uh, branch, yeah, whatever it was called. And so he was in Krakow for I think two, maybe even three years, uh, and he really liked um, Krakow and he randomly came to one of my band's concerts on the suggestion of one of his employees mm-hmm. and he lost his mind. Uh, he, and you know, he's a bass player. He's a, a, um, you know, a rock fan. And, uh, that's, and we, you know, immediately got to talking and eventually our band started touring together. I booked a bunch of shows. Which band was this of yours? This was electric. Okay. Yeah. Um, the now defunct, uh, electric, uh, unfortunately we defunct bro- trick defunct trick. Yeah. 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 Uh, we broke up, um, you know, this is an interesting historical note, but, uh, we broke up two weeks before the pandemic. Yeah. Good times. Do you think like how much did electrics break up really spearhead the, the pandemic in your, I th- you know, I, I, I don't want to take all the blame, but you know, I'll, I'll take some of it. Sure. We, we were holding a lot of things together yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, our involvement in the world health organizations, you know, scanning of, you know, rare coronavirus diseases, you know, it's uh, it's not really known by our fan base, but that sure. was really what we we're about preventing, you know, the who, the who, mm-hmm. no, the WHO. Yeah. <laughs> the Who. Yeah. Yeah. My favorite <laughs> band. Right. Um, so did they, did they have another vocalist previously? And then they did. Yeah. How did this come about? Were they, were they, cause I know, I remember a couple years ago, you had first started talking about this project. Like how did this come about? Yeah. <coughs> so I think it was in 2017 they their previous singer the original singer of the band um because he only sang and wrote in hungarian sure um but they had wanted to to try singing in english for a while yeah and they asked me to help them kind of translate and then to to 
sing a version of one of their more popular songs um, in English. And I said, sure, yeah, why not? And the song was called Eden. And it was an interesting process. And this is where I started working with the drummer because the drummer, um, shout out to Pushkin, um, Tibor Pus- Puskas is his name, mm. but everyone calls him Pushkin. I certainly do. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, he's an English and I believe Russian uh, literature uh, professor. And so, yeah, he, he also did a lot of translation from Hungarian to, to English and, you know, was interested in poetry, songwriting, all this stuff. So we worked together to... You speak Hungarian, right? No. Okay. Not even close. I speak and, you know, I, I wish that I, I spoke more. I mean, I'd like to think that I can understand some, but I mean, this... How close to Polish and or Russian is it? Not, I no, mean, no. it's a completely separate language. Okay, group. okay. It's Finno-Ugric, um, which is, I think, the closest language is the the Orc language in Lord of the Rings. Sure. Um, which you do yeah. speak. No, no offense, but uh, I'm not even exaggerating. I think, um, you know, literally Tolkien, you know, based... The, the orc languages on Finno-Ugric languages. Um, I may be wrong, and I'm sure we'll get some hate if anyone's still listening to this. I mean, at least at least he based it on it. I don't know if you know... So, are you familiar with... Uh, so, so, George Lucas famously, for the original Star Wars trilogy, just straight up lifted languages. Sure, uh, yeah, yeah. So... Um, do you know Jabba the Hutt? You know the the connection to to Slavic languages. Yeah. So Jabba in Polish and in Russian, I believe, is frog. I checked out. So yeah, he he is large frog man. Right, the Hutt. Um, yeah. So you know the character Nin Num mm-hmm. uh, from Return of the Jedi. You know he, he co-piloted the Millennium Falcon with Lando. So he's just straight up speaking Filipino. Oh yeah. That's what he's and 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 it's funny because um you know because at the time clearly George Lucas is American and was you know even though most of those were filmed in England it's you know he was like all oh, these are exotic languages which you know is somewhat problematic on its own but over the years since Return of the Jedi came out Nina for those not not Star Wars nerds um, is a very, very minor character. He's maybe in three scenes in the original trilogy, but in the ensuing decades since then, became a huge Filipino Star Wars hero because he's speaking Filipino. Wow. Uh, and he's not... His responses are not... Like, it's just gibberish, basically. He's saying nonsensical things that have nothing to do with what they're saying. They just based it on, you know... Uh, how it sounded phonetically and it sounded cool, but there's became such a huge thing. That's why they brought him back in the sequel trilogy, just because he was huge, not only in the Philippines, but in a lot of Asian countries. Uh, he became this huge, weird folk character in Star Wars. But anyway, yeah. Hungarian. Hungarian. Yeah. Uh, whew, where were we? Orc languages. Orc languages, yeah. So it's a, it's an amazing language. And um, yeah, for this project, actually, I, I, I had to research, you know, a lot of Hungarian history and folklore. Uh, and there's a lot of, you know, just like the um, Apollo program, you know, we uh, NASA used 
you know, um, Greek mythology, uh, you know, talking about Apollo for the names. Yeah. So the the Hungarians, uh, the cosmonauts, also used that. Well, they used um, their mythology. Uh, so there, I found out all about the, the the gods that founded, you know, the Hungarian state and right. like Chaba is is there like. Um, Oof, I'm going to mess this up, but he, you know, he's basically the, this mythical warrior leader, uh, that, you know, he, he fought off invaders and, uh, and then, you know, left to go to the skies and he's, you know, one of the, the constellations. So, you know, their, their spaceship is called Chaba and, you know, they're, you know, part of the whole background is, uh, you know, connected to that. And there's a bird that's like, you know, their symbol, the Hungarian symbol, it's called, um, Turul. And it's this giant mythical beast. It's mm-hmm. like a, can't remember what it's like a Zephyr, I think, or a Griffin. No, mm. what is it? It's it's pretty gnarly. So the so we called their the landing craft. Um, you know, instead of the in, in the um, Apollo missions, it's I think they just called it a Lem, but the, it has another Greek name um, or Eagle One, I think. That might be it, yeah. American, yeah. You know, so they call it the two rule, which is you know, the landing craft, the 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 bird part of the the Chaba spaceship. But yeah, you know, this is, but the the language itself, uh, it's it is such it's a fascinating language, and um, I wish I knew it. Yeah. Um, but it is one of the yeah. I mean, there's you know, there's pissing contests all the time about what is the hardest language in the world. Uh, and yeah, I'm pretty sure Hungarian and or Finnish, um, they, they generally win Yeah, because the, not only are they the most challenging, um, grammatically, but they're, uh, you know, phonetically, they're like, um, Chinese, uh, or Korean, they're, f- um, tonal languages. There are tonal language as well. So not only do you have to learn like 16 cases uh, you know, which are very challenging grammatically. You have so yeah. many exceptions to learn. Then there's the added layer of, you know, every word has a, a, a tonal. Because, you know, like famously in Chinese, you know, you, the word ma, uh, you say ma, ma, ma. And they have different meanings by the way you say it. Sure. But it's written the same way. Yeah. So Hungarian has that added layer of complexity on top of being, you know, statistically, grammatically, the most complicated language. Hmm. So, yeah, it is, uh, it is very challenging. And I, I have not, yeah, managed to crack even the top layer. I'm assuming that the, the guys in the band then also speak English or Polish? They do. Yeah, no, they're, uh, well, it's funny. Um, so the bass player, uh, Bela, and the drummer, um, Pushkin, their, their English is, is amazing. Um, but the, the guitarist Attila, which is, you know, um, the, probably the most known Hungarian name Mm -hmm. thanks to Attila the Hun, uh, Attila doesn't really speak English at all. Nice. Yeah. So, you know, it, 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 which has been, you know, amusing, um, because I've known these guys for a decade and, uh, you know, as we've started to work on this album together and even, you know, when we started that one song, you know, he didn't understand my translations. He didn't understand, you know, mm-hmm. and every time that we meet, uh, you know, our, our 
communication is always through translation, really. Yeah. And, you know, he speaks some, but it's very limited. Nice. Um, but, yeah, it's it's been an interesting, you know, um, process working with him and him trying to understand, uh, you know, what I'm bringing to the band. Sure. Because, you know, this, this album, there is a lot of text. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I have not written so much for an album in my life. And, uh, you know, there's, it's basically a libretto because it's a, you know, it's kind of a space opera, mm-hmm. let's say. So there's a, there's a lot going on. So with this project, was it, did they have the music already and then you wrote to it or it, you came up with a story and then it was kind of built from around that? Yeah. So, that so let me set you up. So this was, I guess, I want to say it was 2018, maybe, yeah. Yeah, it's, it must have been. So, um, Bela messaged me um, and said, you know, we got an idea for our next album and we want you to basically join as a guest singer and we want you to work with us to write the lyrics, etc. Now, what was going on with my life at the time, um, you know, my, my second child um, had been born uh, and, you know, I was juggling... Full-time job had just started. I think I, I was a year in um, the IT world. And, um, yeah, I, I just could not hang. I could barely – I didn't have enough time to have even band practices with, at the time, Electric and Smingus, much less start a third project. And so I immediately said, no, no way. I mean, I'm very flattered, but uh, sorry, that's a hard no. And, uh, you know, he immediately called. He said, what do I need to do to convince you? Because, you know, we we know that you're the only one that can really do this. Mm-hmm. And I have this vision. You know, what do I need to do? do he got you fired you? from your job, didn't you? <laughs> Not exactly. No. Um, and I just told him, you know, I was like, listen, that you know, I, I this is what my life looks like. It's, you know, I can't do it. He's like, okay, I'm going to be in Krakow this weekend. Can we meet and mm. can I um, convince you? Convince you, yeah. And I said, listen, you know, <laughs> please don't drive all this way. At the time, he was based in Sarajevo because um, he was there for his year, two-year stint running the, you know, Bosnian branch of the this Hungarian oil and company. For our, uh, for, for our ignorant Americans who don't know um, geography of Europe, how far from Krakow is Sarajevo? Uh, it's basically, um, from Boston to, um, Virginia. Okay. So it's about like, what is it? 12 hour drive? Something like that. Yeah. 12. I think it's a 12 might, depending on traffic, et cetera. It's about 12 to 14 hour drive. And, uh, I can do it in eight just so you know. Yeah. But that's, that's at night. Right. Right. Totally. So yeah. So this guy drove straight from Sarajevo to Krakow. And, uh, I mean, he's crazy. I mean, th- this guy is, he likes to drive. I mean, you know, he, he's an oil man and he's been driving around the region, so, but he drove and, you know, I said, all right, you know, let's sit down and, you know, give me the whole story. And by the end of that weekend, I was on board mm-hmm. and I think I, it did take me understanding the the vision and, you know, actually, because this is again, um, this is post Brexit. This is post um, Trump being elected, and 
me understanding the implications of what this concept album could be. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and, that, and then, yeah, we were off to the races. And they already had some songs uh, and musical ideas ready. But basically what we agreed to is that we were going to, because he was still based in Sarajevo, but he was going back every other weekend to Budapest to still play with the, the band. And they were just recording demos. And we sort of agreed, and this is probably the coolest process I've ever taken part in, in terms of songwriting, that they would come up with demos, then they would send them to me, and I would work on, you know, lyrics. And, you know, basically I had to come up with the whole concept for the story. And, you know, we had to agree on, you know, all these different parts and how we're going to tell the story and break it down into songs. And then, you know, basically deal with kind of work out in my head. You know, they would send me all these different ideas and I would have to kind of put them together and how I thought they might work sequentially, uh, but also musically, stylistically, and then start to come up with melodies and then come up with, you know, lyrics that could go over them. Then I would send demos back to them uh, and, you know, they would discuss them and they would suggest maybe some other ideas. And, you know, basically for, for about... A year and a half, we, we kind of worked this way. And, you know, once we would get one song uh, finished, then I would travel to Budapest and I would record the vocals. Because mm. uh, the, the other piece of the puzzle here was that we wanted to finish the album by... Um, is this right? The... 50-year anniversary of the the Apollo moon landing, Okay, which was in 2019. Okay. Yeah. And we missed that. Sure. Yeah. So, yeah, but um, we, we ended up finally finishing the, because this process, you know, it took a long time, but sure. it was, you know, we're all, you know, I was very busy, you know, raising children and, you know, working in the IT world in Poland, and they were all busy with their, you know, their lives, et cetera. Uh, so we finally finished the album um, at the end of 2019. Okay. And we were ready to, re- pretty much we thought we were ready to release it uh, in t- 2020. And uh, yeah, you know the rest of the story. Well, pandemic hit and, you know. Oh, I thought it was, had to do with uh, the brush fires in Australia. No, 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 it did not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's where we are. And so we finally, we finished the album this year in terms of mastering and yeah uh we sent it to be pressed and actually the the we were hoping to get impressed in czech republic uh it is yeah, yeah. and it's worth some like 60 percent of all vinyl is manufactured these yep days. yep um so again this is another topic that to bring us back to, to the music industry god damn it dale yeah i mean so we've my record label in Poland, Loose Wire. You know, we've pressed five albums in the last ten years, mm-hmm. and usually the turnaround was two to three months. Uh, and you know, you could build a crowdfunding um, campaign around that two to three month, right? So you start the campaign, uh, and you know, your your goal is you know part of the the, the campaign is to press vinyl mm-hmm. and you know at the end of that three months you send everyone that's you know bought a vinyl a vinyl but yeah now 
so we submitted the the masters in February uh, and of 2022 of, of 2022 and we were initially told that six to seven months and you know we could plan by the end of August then in May they told us that yep we're experiencing extreme delays and the earliest that we're going to be able to deliver is November mm-hmm so now the plan is basically to launch as, as long as we can get, you know, a written in blood guarantee that the vinyls will show up, you know, in November. Mm-hmm. Then we're going to plan to launch the crowdfunding campaign in, in October and officially release the album in November. Gotcha. Yeah, that's it's, you know, I have friends in various bands on various levels of, uh, you know, fame or whatever whatever you want to use and uh there was a pretty pretty um well known in the certainly in the hardcore uh and you know aggressive music community band converge released an album in october last year but it was only digitally and cd because it um you know the because of the same thing the vinyl was delayed uh you know i i paid for the vinyl back in October and I want to say it was May or June that I finally received it and that was the same same issue mm-hmm. but yeah it's you know there's only people don't realize or a lot of people don't realize there's only I think it's eight vinyl manufacturing plants in the world right now because right. you know in the 1990s most of them were dismantled because they're like oh, nobody's buying records anymore yeah and um, and I, you know, I've talked to a couple of people and they're like, why don't they just build a new factory? And I'm well, like, this is Jack White's thing, right? Yeah. I mean, he's literally calling out, you know, the, the, the big five, uh, and, you know, shaming them into building their own vinyl pressing plants. Cause they're, I mean, independent artists, they, they are now, I mean, in the worst possible position. Cause, you know, even though that vinyl is popular, it's, you know, the pop music, super uh superstar market mm-hmm. uh you know has basically marginalized their commercial relevancy right well and it's interesting too because i feel like and obviously this is just my perspective on it but i also feel like i do have a not uneducated opinion about it a lot of the larger artists who are now releasing vinyl for the first time, a lot of people who, you know, a, a, a good chunk of their audience are not actually listening to these records that they, you know, they're buying it as like a collectible sort of thing. Cause a lot of people now are buying vinyl for its, you know, it's inherent, like potential resale value sure, absolutely. or just as a memento, um, I mean, it's interesting. You go into Target, you go into Walmart. Here, they they both have big vinyl sections now, relative. Um, but they both of them also have all these accoutrements for displaying vinyl, like you know, frames for putting your vinyl on on the wall. And I'm just like, as much as I do think it looks cool, I'm like, it, it's meant to be listened to. It's a you know, yeah. it's a physical format, and I, so I think a lot of people buy them but then just stream the album and sure. you know whatever whatever it's not for me to say how one should or shouldn't enjoy music but um i'm like how many people 
who are buying the Adele or Taylor Swift albums, uh, is vinyl their primary way that they're hearing that album? I don't think it's that many. Whereas a lot of indie artists, particularly ones that don't use big streaming services, vinyl is the way that primarily people are hearing this music. So, Yeah, Yeah, I mean, this this is a topic that, you know, I think is going to um, define... Uh, the next decade of my uh, personal and professional uh, life, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated by these these problems and, and these issues. And it, we're talking about really, you know, the value of intellectual property, mm-hmm. which I think is the, is the, the issue um, of our day, really. Because this is, you know, this is really starting to change. And, and we probably need to, if we're going to get into it, um, probably need a whole other episode to sure. to, to dig into it because sure. I, I don't want to bore people too much. But uh, you know, there there is a lot of exciting stuff on the horizon, and but I think there is something about you know the the value of a physical item that has intellectual property, right? Be it a a vinyl record uh, or a piece of art, right? That it's a the physical. Um, you know, and if we talk about art, you know, do we just talk about the the physical art or the, you know, the idea that is being transferred on that physical piece mm-hmm. of art, right? Because it's, you know, you're an artist as well. Allegedly. Right. And, um, you know, my wife is a, a, a painter as well. Right. And, you know, it's very interesting to, you know, talk about just in, you know, in a theoretical sense, you know, what is a painting? Is it the physical painting, the, the paint, the physical paint that is on the canvas? Or is it the, the idea that is, you know, the intellectual property that's been transferred by her putting uh, paint to canvas, mm-hmm. right? Which then, you know, th- this is sort of, um, you know, it, again, Apologies if I've already bored people to sleep because this is not necessarily an issue that everyone wants to talk about. But fundamentally, you know, there is a a digital um, reproduction that's made of a painting these days when digital photography, you know, became popular or even, you know, scanning analog photography that there is an idea, an accepted idea that this painting has a digital equivalent, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and you know what I'm getting to. Um, and unfortunately I, I don't want to, you know, open this can of worms because right now these three little letters are very misunderstood, mm-hmm. but the non fungible token concept at its base level is basically assigning, uh, a universal, um, accepted, uh, image ID to that intellectual property. Right. It's the that is basically that painting has one image, not that you cannot copy and have, you know, basically own. Mm. But rather there is one digital version that is universally accepted, which basically carries the value of that intellectual property. So, again, this is I find fascinating, but I know that NFT people think of, you know, Bored Ape Yacht Club and all these, you know, the crazy, you know, um, I believe they're called PFP. There's, you know, personal profile images, 
but actually the the technology behind it um you know it's it's much more significant and i'm mm-hmm. um you know i'm at the beginning of my journey in understanding it but i think the implications like for music uh are huge whereas mm-hmm. i think you know a vinyl record is the physical um let's say expression of intellectual property and if you're a fan you want to own that intellectual property and you want the artist to get money for that it's the same thing with the digital version mm. but right now you know cuz streaming you're not owning anything and you're not actually paying the artist and i think people consumers are are now more and more aware that if they stream an artist's album on spotify or apple music that artist doesn't actually get paid right and even if or independent artists get paid very little um, bigger artists uh, will get paid more because of publishing royalties, et cetera, mm. et cetera. I think consumers are are waking up to that fact. Yeah. So they are willing to support <laughs> artists in other ways. And I think there's an, the, an interesting market out there. And I, I'm curious, you know, we probably won't have a chance to discuss this in the next couple of years, but next time we talk, I'm curious to to see where we'll be sure. if uh, you know NFTs actually have been able to solve some of these problems for artists sure. or not. What do you think about the? Um, <clears throat> you familiar about with the uh, a singular album that the Wu Tang Clan did? Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> which um, I mean, it obviously, it was a bit of a stunt, but it was also. Uh, it's it, it sort of like predated. And I mean, it's a different thing because it's a physical thing. Sorry, I was just looking at the, make sure this, making sure it was still recording. I, I go through that every time I record because yeah. I've lost a couple at some point because either like the battery dies or whatever. Sure. But um, uh, yeah, the and the guy that ended up buying it is the, you know, um, made his money in big pharma and you know not not a great guy but i did love i don't know if you you heard about this that so he has the one physical copy of this the cd you know and they haven't distributed any other way and it was basically whoever wanted but didn't he get the the um mechanical rights as well so he basically he owns the album Right. And he can do with it, distribute it however yeah. he wants, so on and so forth. Like he owns the rights to it. However, there was a there's a clause in it that um, if any of the members of the Wu Tang Clan or Bill Murray um, yes. were able to physically get it back. Um, but like he, in a wrestling match, like or like if they like. <laughs> broke in and uh-huh. stole it. I love this. Uh, not only um, would he lose it, but that he could but have he would no lose, le- he would have no legal recourse against But it. he would lose the digital rights as well if they got the physical album. Yeah. Dude, this is this is it. So this it's is like, so amazing. Yeah. So this is this is what absolutely fascinates me is that th- there is a, um, an indelible connection between the 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 physical expression of intellectual property and the the digital right doesn't even we don't even need to use the word digital it's like you know because digital is something that's you know we understand is something that's existed only in the last 30 years mm-hmm. but this is like you know just to 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 take it back 
to like the Medici, mm-hmm. right? Because this is where I love to go when people are like, dude, what are you talking about? Um, you know, we're talking about intellectual property, right? And, you know, the, you know, Michelangelo, uh, you know, never got any the the royalties. That's yeah. correct. Yeah, yeah. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Never got any royalties uh, from, you know, any of the works that the Medici, Medici funded, right? They, they bought them outright and there was no concept of, of royalties, right? Uh, so they were patrons, so they bought like much like this guy bought the Wu Tang album, right? Mm. But the in the in those times, um, you had what happened if the physical piece of art was removed, the idea of the art was gone, right? There was no, I mean, even if it was, let's say they they wanted to put a price tag on it, most of that art didn't because it was for. Uh, the Vatican, right, uh, or you know whatever the Holy Roman Empire was the end client, um, but they would they didn't own the idea of it; they owned the physical, sure, right, so that they could you know if it was resold, um, you know it was just the physical you know piece of art, mm-hmm. and you know so no royalties even for the let's say the owners the Vatican and the artist you know they could never if for whatever it was sold on the secondary market they would never get anything sure. of that, right? And that comes, you know, right now, you know, the secondary market, so like the, if we're talking about, you know, a, a vinyl record, you know, like Discogs or, you know, eBay or whatever, you know, this is, you know, what would this dude, if he thought that the Wu-Tang and Bill Murray, you know, were at his house, uh, would he physically try and sell that physical sure. item yeah. if he thought he was going to lose his his rights to right. it or you know you know what would he do what would his recourse be because he has no he doesn't own actually the the digital right. uh or the idea he doesn't actually own it because it's right. it's connected to the physical album sure so these are anyways I, i'm sure we've lost uh, a few people here doing some intellectual property gymnastics but right. uh I'm I'm super excited to to jump steal in Wu-Tang to album. steal a Wu Tang album, absolutely, but only if Bill Murray is involved. Obviously, yeah. Sorry, Rizza. I just think it's funny that uh, they put that in there because they've had a strange friendship with him for you know Bill more than a decade. M. F. Murray, Bill Ghostbusted Murray. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, that's a. That's a pretty good, I don't want to say stopping point, because obviously there's a lot more to talk. That's a good place to pause this yeah. conversation. Um, so that album, The Space Erase, we're hoping for November. What, yeah. uh, just, you know, real quickly, um, since we're talking about it, what is what is the status with Smingus right now, your other band? So Smingus, uh, yeah, uh, I, I would recommend everyone go out and and get a copy of our last album, Black Diamonds, mm-hmm. uh, which is still available on, on vinyl. It's a 2015 that you released that? Uh, I hope it wasn't that long. No, I think it was 2017. Okay. Um, but yeah, we've, we, we have started working on LP3. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, this has been an ongoing thing. The, the pandemic hit Smingus really hard. Uh, and, you know, we didn't play for like 18 months. So we are slowly getting back mm-hmm. on the horse. 
Um, but we're actually supposed to have a gig in August. And um, yeah, I'm hoping we'll, we'll make some progress with LP3, but we realistically probably won't uh, finish and or release it till 2023. Do you guys have like a cache of songs or is it, are we kind of starting from zero? We're so Dave, the, the main uh, vocalist and songwriter, um, he's got about 20 demos um, that he's, you know, at various stages, you know, he's kind of, and, and they're in, they're at various stages as well. And, you know, are they about this British space program. Uh, they are indeed. I figured. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'd be surprised, but the the Welsh, uh, you know, yeah. they they have a leading role in that. <laughs> um, no, I'm kidding. But yeah, they're. The, I would say knowing Dave, I mean, we Black Diamonds, for example. You know, this was probably the best case scenario um, for doing an album right uh, for a a band, right? Because mm. we really the drummer had his own recording studio in Krakow and we were able to nurture those songs uh, over I think a two year period yeah. and we were having rehearsals this was all this was pre-kid for me mm-hmm. uh, Dave has kids too right? Dave has a daughter uh, so yeah n- I don't think neither myself nor Dave had a, a kid the bassist who's uh, the, the senior member of the band mm-hmm. um, he has I think three kids in, in Krakow. Sorry, Chris, if I get that wrong. Um, and the drummer ha- has a daughter. Um, so There's a second guitar player, too. Oh, uh, right? and uh, Tomek. Yeah, sorry, Tomek has a son as well. Um, so I think at the time we had a grand total of, of five kids in the band when we were doing Black Diamonds. Now we have eight kids in the band. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it, it is a factor, certainly for me and Dave, who were the main drivers of the both songwriting and the production. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, I think in this is again, it, it was also where the pandemic really um, knocked us off our horse because it had taken, even before the pandemic, we, we were on a break, like a six to nine month break. I can't remember how long it was, but we finally managed to get our own studio going practice studio. Uh, and, we were in rehearsals for LP3 and we're writing songs and we had like, we had found the vibe, you know, everything was going and then the pandemic hit. And then literally, you know, we were not able to, to do remote. We weren't. And a few of the members had complications. Um, everyone's okay. But as you know, many people during the pandemic, we just, we were not able to, to write, record, anything so we're sure. basically yeah we were starting we're starting from scratch basically for lp3 but right. i have high hopes that we can you know finish the next album before next summer nice yeah nice right on yeah um i have a few more projects as well yeah uh wire cutter you and your uh um listenership might know i believe the song that kicks off um this podcast is from a project called Wirecutter. Yep. And uh, I'm actually getting back to finishing that album, but I'm not sure what I'm going to do with it, to be honest. Um, I think I might use it actually as my test project for Web3, mm-hmm. for Web3 and start messing around with NFTs with Wirecutter because I got a ton of material. It's basically a solo project that I, I worked on with a, this 
Polish uh, producer who's now in London and a cello player. Uh, and I've recently started to reconnect with the cello player and finish some, some, some stuff there. And then I have another project, which um, um, is an anonymous project, um, but it's also... I mean, technically, since you're talking about it, it was an anonymous project. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, um, I'm not going to mention the name. Uh, and, you know... Just, you don't have to answer audibly. Just give me a nod or shake your head if I'm correct. I'm just going to say one word. Buckethead. Okay, now I have my answer. All right, you'll have to just guess, uh, listeners, but all right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, you know, if I want to put some breadcrumbs out there, I mean, it's, um, uh, I think, well, after Electric, um, you know, went, let's say, pear-shaped, mm. and, uh, you know, we went on hold pre-pandemic, two weeks before, actually, mm. um, then the remaining members of Electric, you know, um, we were kind of, we threw our hands in the air and uh, we decided to, to come up with a, a, another outfit and we started producing songs uh, under a different name. Acoustic? Acoustic, yeah. That was actually the name of um, a single we released. Nice. Um, yeah. Anywho, um, it was very much inspired by the pandemic. Okay. And, um, you know, the issue of, and also the, the Black Lives Matters protests um, you know, a lot of things that were happening during the pandemic um, and the issue of musicians role in society mm. and artists roles in society. Uh, and because on the one hand, it put into focus, you know, who is more important in society, uh, the essential workers, obviously, um, that, you know, basically were providing, you know, emergency medical assistance to, you know, people that were that had the virus, um, but also, you know, people that, uh, you know, mental health workers, people that were dealing with, you know, people that were really suffering. But I think one thing that got people through the pandemic more than anything, we talk about, you know, we're all now obsessed with consuming content. Mm -hmm. uh, the artists that got the planet through mm -hmm. the pandemic uh, writers, uh, musicians, painters, uh, you know, people don't really think about it in this terms, but, uh, you know, officially we're non-essential workers, but we're actually, we're on the front lines of, you know, certainly, you know, maybe not necessarily mental health, but certainly getting people through the day. Sure. You know, that's, I mean, at the end of the day, what is this content that everyone consumes and assume people make the assumption that it is theirs because they pay or they you know paying for a subscription but everything that is created you know automatically belongs to them right yeah but the the essential idea there is that you know content doesn't get made without content creators without artists right, right? and an artist can't make art if they don't get paid mm -hmm. and this is kind of the leitmotif of our discussion but this is really what we're talking about, and that's the thesis of that new project. Gotcha. So, yeah, it is a new project, and uh, yeah. To remain unnamed at the time? Yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, I, I, I'm being cute about it, but, you know, there, there is an ethos why we, we don't want to necessarily, you know, put our names out there because that's, 
kind of part of the the whole philosophy of sure. of, of the music. We want the music to to kind of speak for itself, and yes. yeah, we'll see, we'll see how that goes. For sure, us. sure. Right on. Thanks, man. Yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for doing this, and uh, yeah, it's been it's been fun actually seeing you in the physical world. It, it has, man, and uh, <laughs> I hope uh, it won't be such a large gap next time. Right. Well, I mean. If everything goes according to the plans, I'd see you in like, what is it, two months? Yeah. Something like yeah, that. In, in the in, UK? Yeah, on another continent. Oh, dude, we should, we should podcast from T's house. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> right on. T's basement. Yeah. <laughs>